0: Hi, this is Amos Schwarzbarg, and you are listening to The Sassholes.
1: Welcome to Sassholes, a show dedicated to issues within the software as a service industry. We are revenue ops with a edge. Jamie, KG, and myself, Pete, have a combined 100 years of making interesting decisions. Please subscribe to our weekly newsletter today our guest is amos has been growing businesses for 25 years and investing in startups for the past 10 years managing director of tech stars in austin Since 1997, he's helped build companies that have been sold to Yahoo, R.H. Donnelly, The Home Depot, plus over 60 more as a managing director of Techstars Austin. He's also the best-selling author of Sell More Faster and Lovers. Before we get to Amos, this episode is brought to you by NeuroNoodle. Hey, parents of athletes, get a doodle of your noodle, a brain map, before the season starts so you have a baseline to compare it to. You get a physical every year, right? Get a brain checkup before the season starts, schedule an appointment now. Neuronoodle.com. Carney. Yeah, Pete. Carney. Mm-hmm. What time did the man go to the dentist? 2 30. Huh. Leave us some comments on our blog at sassholes.net. Shout outs. Not even fake laughter. I miss you, Ferrara. Maybe
2: mm. I'm, I'm just doing a put
3: yeah, was was just yeah, so bad. And Jamie, then, I'm just—I'm
2: just so glad you're back because he tortured me with those while you know you—you you, yeah. you were, you were not able to. Anyway, thank God
3: yeah, you're back. So Jamie. bad, I apologize for you picking the brunt of that torture. they TikTok, <laughs> you know, him. he used to have a whole team. KG, you were part of it. He used to have a whole team dedicated to bad jokes that would they would write him bad jokes for his Monday morning speeches. At Career Builder, mm-hmm. no, you don't say.
1: Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hey, Conan O'Brien had a writer. He was a writer. Hey, speaking of career builders, they Steve's, were funny. Well, you already heard them. There's only so many bad dad jokes out there, believe me. Yeah. Speaking of career builders, Steve Cerny, chief revenue officer at Career yeah, Builder. Congrats. How about how do you like them apples? People don't know this. He's a break dancer.
3: I did not know that. I should text oh, him right now. He, Is that true?
1: He is a break dancer, oh. and I believe he's got a twin brother, and uh, they put on a show. You might see him one day at the train station. You never know.
3: Well, who you got seeing him right now, calling him out on that.
1: KG, um. you got any shout outs?
3: Uh, just a couple.
2: Uh, congratulations to my friend Cameron Huber for starting a new position as a social media marketing manager at the S- Assist they're here in uh, Los Angeles. I have uh, my friend, Ebony Artis. Uh, she's over at Epploy. She just started a new position as marketing coordinator. And so I'm happy for her there. That's a, an amazing startup, uh, ATS, focused on the healthcare space. And then another one at uh, Ploy, Grayson Galbraith, somebody I'm coaching. She uh, got promoted from SDR to account executive. Pete, we were talking about that. Like, how do you make that transition? And and uh, yeah. so she's made that transition, Grayson, uh, from uh, SDR to account executive as of October first, and she's already closed a couple of deals. So that's uh, God bless that's a, America. That's a, that's a big deal.
1: Rick Carner, attorney at Bernicky Law Firm. Way to go, Carner! He started off the street, worked his way up, paid for his MBA and JD. Now he's going in, and he is a jaw jabber in court. Love it. Kyle Singles promoted to director. Of talented cameo, way to go, Kyle Carney. You got any shout outs or you know? I do. I didn't put it down on the sheet, but
3: uh, oh, okay. Um, Judy Dever, I want to give her congratulations. Judy Diblick Dever, she just became in-house counsel at JLL Jones Lang like LaSalle. Jason Bartusch, guy who used to work for me, is now director of embedded analytics uh, and partnerships. This year, so I got to give him a shout out. I was going to give. Uh, 30 a shout out, um, but you already took and stole my thunder. Well, if you would um, have looked in the
1: notes, it's right I there. Know,
3: I would have. Uh, uh, and uh, that, that's all I got.
1: Okay. Now, K, KG, Amos was your boss. Who is this guy?
2: Back in the day when the first business.com was in existence, um, we had this crazy idea that we would set up this search engine Uh, That was based on pay per click advertising. I think it was 2004, 2005, something like that. Amos and Amos used to be at hot jobs. And so our CEO set up a new company work.com and Amos was the general manager of this pay per click job search engine. Unfortunately, it was way ahead of its time. And HR people were like, I don't understand pay-per-click. It just, you know, sell it to me per post. So we shut it down. Amos then came over to be the VP of sales at business.com. And I was, um, immediately reporting to him. I'll tell you what, this is the first sales leader that, uh, ever taught me what a real sales strategy was all about and taught me about, uh, that it's okay to, to, uh, to love your employees in a, you know, not a weird way, but like, you know, love, love is a good thing and grateful that I have had uh i got exposure to uh to amos and learned from him he's uh he's wise wise beyond his years he's also an adventure racer by the way i don't know if you guys knew knew that it's actually a little known fact that dora the explorer was loosely uh based on his life but no that was not true that was not true that was a lie that was about the
3: making of the movie right i I just saw that (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> yeah, No, but the adventure racing is true and all the other stuff that I said about Amos. He's an amazing individual, incredibly generous, and uh, I'm thankful that uh, that I got to, got to learn from this guy. How about that, Pete?
1: Wow.
3: Well, shoot. Well, I feel like there's First some of all, Well, the Welcome, right Amos, to, yeah, to the I'm, show. I'm
0: blushing. I have no idea how to even respond to that. I think when Kevin told me that similar story, uh, a few years after we were working together, he basically said something like, I was like, who the F is this freaking guy? What the hell is he doing? My boss, what what the heck does he know? And, uh, you know, I probably felt the same way because I've always suffered quite a bit from imposter syndrome, but uh, good to know that, you know, fortunately I had someone like Kevin to work with uh, alongside with another woman, Tanya Wisner and the yeah, I think the three of us made a, a really good team. We, were, we worked well together solving problems.
2: That's right. And then ultimately you helped us get acquired for $350 million and made my stock options worth something. Thank you for that. Yeah. yeah I, so I, I,
0: you're asking about hot jobs. I left hot jobs shortly after Yahoo bought us, about a year after, um, for a number of reasons, primarily because I am not a big company person. I don't do well.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't think any of us do well at uh, big wow. companies. You you get you get old enough. Shoot, man! You're talking about pay per click. If you if you're an OG old school, I mean, that's how you made money is selling four sixty eight by sixties because uh, all the classified ads were free. I mean,
0: well, Kevin that, Kevin said something funny, which was he said that work.com was a, ahead of its time. I I agree with that statement, except that indeed started literally the same month that we did and and ronnie khan who's the founder of indeed is a friend of mine now he wasn't i didn't know him back then uh he lives here in austin and and, and um he's actually an investor in my last fund um but we started at the same time so we could say we started we, we were ahead of its time but he had the more persistence on the model than i did uh at
2: that time well, they they pursued it differently, Amos. They went with the organic approach to get users, and you were selling already. You were trying to monetize already. Yeah, there's a, there's a huge,
0: of... less, a huge lesson in that, which which uh, you know I've I've heard before, and now I preach, which is you know don't worry about making money on day one. Worry about delivering value to your customers, because when you do that well, you will make money.
2: Yeah, and in that instance, the customer wasn't the employer. The customer was the uh, was the candidates. That's right, and that and that's where Indeed focused on that. And, uh, and work.com was focused on selling ads. I want to debate that with you. Your
3: customer is
2: yeah, who gives you money.
3: Yeah, and so, these so. customers were job boards to start. And then the market dried up and they went to the staffing firms and then went back to the job boards where the job boards started having money after 2008. And then they kept on going up uh, or down the chain, however you want to look at it. Big agencies, bigger companies. Yep. And they, they slowly and uh, uh, surely just crippled the job board.
0: I do want to push back. The, the, yeah, the, the, their customer was never the job seeker. The job seeker was always their product. It's just that they mm-hmm. recognized that they had to build a great product. Hence, how do you create something awesome with the job seeker so that the employers can, w- would want to spend
2: money on it? No. The dynamics of a, of a two-sided marketplace. Yeah. It's tough to build.
1: Well, what do they say? If uh, the product's free, you're the product. So w- where are you at now, Amos? Give, give us a uh, run, run through your career again. Yeah, so after after
0: we sold business.com, I was still living in LA. And I, for like the third time, swore off ever being part of a, a startup again. Lasted about four months. I moved to Austin and started an, another company in the music space, which which was great. Fully bootstrapped, and we sold it. And then I joined a company called Black Locust here in Austin. That was a really fast but really good run. I was there less than a year. We uh, we sold the company for fifty five million dollars. Uh, with you know after our Series A, with virtually with basically a million bucks in revenue. And then uh, I started another company after that, which crashed and burned. And somewhere in there. Uh, took over the role of running Techstars in Austin, which was a little over six years ago. So for the last six years, I've been um, predominantly an investor uh, in early stage companies. What is Techstars? Techstars is a global accelerator with our mission being uh, helping entrepreneurs succeed wherever they are in their journey, which we could mean a lot of things, but it includes, it doesn't matter if you're in the Bay Area or LA, or India, or Germany, wherever you are, we want to be able to help you be successful. Uh, also, I, idea to ideation. How do we? How do we have an impact on helping you, helping you, the entrepreneur, build an awesome, meaningful, long term, sustaining business?
1: And you're an and author you- too.
0: I'm an accidental <laughs> author twice. The the first book, Sell More Faster, which uh, Kevin wrote the forward to. KG wrote the forward to is really in a lot of ways, a depiction of the time that we spent at business.com. And I say accidental because, uh, I, I'm no longer an adventure racer, but at one time I was, but I still am a pretty avid cyclist. And I, I screwed up my ankle pretty bad. And I was off the bike for about four months and I, I'm, I can't sit still. And so I had that energy to do something with. And, I uh, the long story short, I decided to see if I could, uh, write a, a series of blog posts and they ended up being many, many pages and Wiley got a hold of them and decided to publish them as a book. Obviously there's a little more to it than that. And then the second book levers was, I put a lot more thought into it because this is actually the framework and structure that I use to work with the, the companies that I invest in, but I didn't write that whole thing myself. I, I plucked friends of mine who were experts in different parts of the framework to help write those chapters. So while I oversaw the whole thing with my co-author, Trevor Baim, Cody Sims, who uh, was at Techstars and now part of my climate journey, and Troy Henikoff, who's at a GP at Math Ventures, uh, were our
2: co-authors on that. In that first book, and we, you know, you talked about our time at, at business.com. And this is part of what I was saying earlier. You, you taught me what a, a sales strategy is all about. I'd say it's time to lay it on the listeners. What's uh, what's W3?
0: W3 was something that we, we came up with there uh, at business.com when we were trying to answer really a, a very simple question about our existing customer base what was working and what was not and it started off of really like i think just as like us literally asking these questions of ourselves and realizing that in it, in in that there was a strategy but it's three simple questions that are very hard to answer when you actually put the the time into figuring it out it's who do i believe my customer is and i'm going to I'll go into a little more detail on 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 the, all three of them what am i selling uh, i'm sorry what is my customer buying from me not what am i selling to them and why are they buying it and so for the who like if you ask any you know any random entrepreneur hey who's your customer they will likely give you a very broad answer for a lot of reasons one they may not know two because they want to they want to paint a picture of a massive market but the way that we the way that we think about it the way we thought about it at business.com the way that we think about it and the way that i, I teach it now is what is the narrowest and most specific definition of who you believe your customer is or who they are so that you can develop a long list of attributes so that you can say like, okay, I know if someone has all of these attributes, hundred percent of the time they'll say, yes, doesn't mean that I'm only going after this, this group of people, but it helps me deeply understand who they are so that I can start to play with the attributes, take some out, add some in and have, and eventually reach the entire total addressable market. The what. Um, what are they buying from you? Not what are you selling? It's a slight nuance. And what I like to say is no one n- no one cares about what you do. They care about what you do for them. So what are they buying from you? The example I like to use is Google, or we can say business.com, right? No one wakes up in the morning and says, God damn it. I can't wait to buy search today. They say, gosh, darn it. I want to go buy customers. I want to go find customers. And getting search on Google they are essentially looking for how they will acquire new customers or acquire research or leads or whatever it might be. And then the why why do they buy? How is it impacting the business and the individual? And those are separate things. So, for the business, is it driving profit? Is it driving margin? Is it creating some efficiencies in time? That's for the business. And then, separately, and we learned this the hard way at business.com how does it impact the individual buyer? So, for example, you could be selling to, trying to sell to someone who you know you're going to drive their revenue by 20%, but that individual buyer, they may not get a a promotion or a raise or a bonus just because they're buying from you. And so what's their incentive to do more work when it doesn't actually mean anything to them, which circles back to the who. It may not be the Mm -hmm. who at that time.
2: Yeah. The example at business.com was... um... Uh, and by the way, Amos Jamie is the finance and ops guy, so he, there's a lot to be said there. The, the who, in particular, at Business.com, it was prior to Amos coming on board. We basically were just selling to anybody who bought pay per click. And by the way, anybody who, any, whenever it starts with anybody who, is way too broad already. Okay, and we were selling to anybody who bought pay per click advertising on um, on Overture at the time, which you know. Um, Overture.
1: Up, oh my. God. Yeah, I'm we're waiting waiting ourselves by a lot.
2: That's right. But <laughs> I the, remember but the, Overture. But the problem ended up being is that we would sell advertisers into categories that didn't have any traffic. And so Amos, with the who uh, part of the strategy, we got really, really clear that we were looking to sell customers. And it got deeper than this, but it was you know customers that were buying pay-for-click advertising in uh, categories on our site that had high traffic and low advertiser coverage. And, and it became very narrow in who we were going after. Um, and I've used that uh, every other company that I've been at, because when that market that you're going after is so huge, you're gonna see very low conversion rates because you just aren't focused. Um, Jamie, what, what are your thoughts on the upside?
3: One part, I like the I like the who concept. I was thinking, what about can Right? Because there's a lot of times reps are talking to somebody who wants to buy, who, can, who says they can buy. And they have, especially nowadays with COVID, they cannot buy. Like, uh, we're dealing with that with a client that was trying to hit us up to sell us some uh, stuff. In fact, they were on our show, People AI. They're hitting up different people in our organization. The person that could buy is sitting right here. I was like, I'm just going to put it in the budget. It's it bought. Don't worry about it. But they spend a lot of time on all these other people that just give them lip service. And at the end of the day, the can, who who can buy it? Who can put it in the budget? Who can make things happen? Who can authorize all this stuff to get it done? Well,
0: that, I think that's right. And, and I mean, you, you can separate it out. I think I think about it as the can, as, as a subset of the who. I learned okay. the same thing um, it, a, again at, at Black Locust where, and I'll I'll use like Home Depot and Lowe's as the two examples. Um, We learned, I learned that if a company didn't have someone whose title was pricing analytics specialist or something pricing analytics, that they were not going to be a a customer in the near term. So using Home and Lowe's, uh, Lowe's and Home Depot as an example, Home Depot had a single person responsible for all pricing across their millions of products. Lowe's, every single one of their merchandisers made pricing decisions. So there were hundreds of people.
3: Mm. So you tell me which one is going to buy faster and and have more influence. Yeah, it's difficult. I think nowadays with COVID, the biggest change has been the people that can buy has shrunk. Some of these bigger companies are trying to control everything and make sure they're not overspending. And the, it depends on also how big you are. You need to get... You, The larger the company, you need to also be thinking about when do I get, when do I engage procurement and all of that type of stuff? Because procurement ultimately is going to be involved in a lot of large companies, medium-sized companies. you got to make sure you're high enough up and don't have happy ears. You know, I see that with a lot of sales people where they had a great conversation with somebody who had a certain title and they're telling everyone and their mother that this deal is going to come in. And at the end of the day, we find out that that person cannot buy and has no chance of helping us uh, besides, you know, influencing the decision.
2: Uh, no, Jamie, I swear to God, I've used this so many times. Uh, interest is the counterfeit of need. My, my friend Ken Krogh from insidesales.com used to say that all the time. Interest is the counterfeit of need. Oh, they're really, really interested. And then he put it in their pipeline and like, no, come on, man. Go figure out if it's a real deal or not. <laughs> oh my God. That's awesome. Amos.
0: Yeah, I completely agree with that. And I think W3, address the way that I think about W3 addressing that is with the why and the how do you know, right? The why is because it's going to impact my job by this. Well, how do you know? Because I measure it by this. So if that person is able to articulate, well, I know it will drive blah, 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 the likelihood that they're able to sell it themselves internally up the chain, whether or not they're the decision maker or not, will increase if they can say like, hey, I know it's going to impact the business by 5%. Well, you know, are you, as the finance guy, are you going to say, no, I don't
3: want 5% more revenue? <laughs> no, we're going to, yeah, we're going to say, take, take, take. Yeah. Go, go, go. Yeah. It, it is interesting though. I, I, and it's just, it's interesting how deals, I think in the last year or so have changed from, um, you know, maybe multiple different people within an organization that have buying power over a certain amount to really being down to a small amount. Every every deal I feel like has delayed if it's over a certain dollar amount compared to where it was maybe two years ago before COVID. that could be have something to do with scale people working from home not traveling as much not wasting time they're uh, in in logistical nightmares have more time or expected to have more time to sort of sign off on everything
2: Easier said than done, this W3 process, you know, you're dealing with founders that like most of the time it's first time. They've never done this, you know, before. Otherwise they probably wouldn't be with, you know, tech stars if they don't need that assistance, you know? And so, you know, you're, you're laying the W3 on them, the who and the what and the why. How do founders go about proving their W3 and making sure that they've got the W3 uh, right?
1: Yeah.
0: Uh, I want I'll answer that. But I want to say the, the, the interesting thing is the majority of the founders that I'm working with in the last couple of years are not first time founders. They're serial founders. They've done it three or four or more times. And, I, and, and the reason is because they know how freaking hard it is to start a company and they're looking for as much support as possible. The incremental two or three, four or five points that they're that they're trading off for that. Meaningless relative to being
2: successful. Um, don't argue. Don't argue with me on, on I show. Will always, don't argue with me. I will
0: argue with you and hug you at the same time. The, your, your question. The, what, when I I, so w, I there's a bunch of workshops that I teach all the time, and W three is one of them. And I lead off with with this comment almost always, which is if you think this is going to be easy, it's okay if you want to leave because it's not. The mental image you should have in your head is. Right now, you you have to go in your backyard and you have to dig a 100 foot by 100 foot wide ditch that's 100 feet deep through limestone with your fingertips. That's what you're about to go do. So be prepared for that, first of all. And that is including figuring out your W3. It is hard work. And now maybe I'm just old. I have not figured out a substitute for picking up the phone and talking to dozens, if not hundreds or thousands of people and figuring it out. I do not believe this is something, except in the rare case where someone might just get lucky, getting lucky, finding a needle in a haystack, that it take, doesn't take more than three, four, five years to be able to prove that you can find repeatability in your W3. You may have lots of markers along the way that say, yeah, I'm pretty sure I'm headed in the right direction. But getting that proof, I think it takes a, like a long, long time and a lot of hard work and a lot of conversations and a bunch of customers that aren't the right customers and Customers are going to churn and the discipline to go and look and say, "Okay, what what works in my list of attributes and what doesn't work and continuing to refine it over time.
1: Amos, you're a yellow page guy in a a past life.
0: I can maybe (laughs) not really, (laughs) but sort of.
1: (laughs) No, well, I I definitely was. uh, And it wasn't even that
3: I do not want to bring that up.
0: Yeah.
1: Well,
0: I'll tell you, <laughs> well, my first sales job was at hot sales, my first real sales job. And yeah. the thing that, that, that I went through a stretch of like, how do I figure it all out? And and I got really, really lucky. I had a customer who I don't even remember who they were anymore, but they're, they were also salespeople and they gave me this 12 page list that had like 200 lines per page of all of the people they were calling on. And I just, I did exactly your script. I went down and like, you know, crossed off and starred and it wasn't in a computer. It was on a piece of paper. <laughs> well,
1: Donnelly had a, uh, a script. I don't remember how many pages it was. And you couldn't hit hit the phones or hit the. Actually, it was the street. At least it was for us till you memorize that script. And it was such a great education because you learned the difference between creative advertising, directional advertising, and this is all before Google. You had yellow pages, and then we we had a taste of classified advertising, working with the newspapers and career builder hot jobs and whatnot. And it is interesting how all these companies kind of morphed in not a good way. Do you think there's one thing that you could point to that the reason why they didn't continue to be successful or didn't especially with the yellow pages they had it all they had the lists and they could have dominated why didn't they
0: yeah i know i don't i don't know if i could point to a single a single thing and if i were the probably the word would be arrogance that things weren't going to change and i look at donnelly you know when they bought business.com the the reason that they they bought us was because they recognized, and it was already too late, but they recognized that their model wasn't going to persist. And so they needed to figure out how to get online. So I, yeah. I, I don't know. There's probably lots of reasons, but I think arrogance is the biggest one. It's why, that's a know, life totally separate conversation. it's why I think the music industry is going to tumble and people inside don't see it, but it's, it's going to happen.
3: And I think that but happens across the board. As soon as the company gets too big, they get arrogant. They also try to get outside of their what they're known for. Everyone tries to do it, and we we experience that. Why not be the best at what you are and focus on being the best at what you are and just own that until uh, the, you know? So many of them try to expand outside because of multiples or anything like that, and then they end up dying. Five. 10 well, this was later.
2: yeah. This was interesting, Pete uh, and Jamie, uh, because you know Amos and I you know work through this whole thing ourselves and. You know, R. H. Donnelly had bought a an online advertising company previous. And that was a failed acquisition. And uh, they then went and bought us then for three hundred and fifty million dollars. And the strength that they had, you know, you do your SWOT analysis, that they had a sales force of nine hundred uh, sorry, they they had like, I don't know, thousand salespeople or two. I think it was like three or
1: four
0: thousand, yeah.
2: Yeah, Yeah. something huge like that. And then they had something like 900,000 customers or a huge, huge customer base that was still buying print, you know, on the back of the yellow pages. And they knew that those were turning into doorstops and they needed to change, you know, some things. And, you know, Amos, you may recall that Salesforce was unionized. So getting, so getting that RH Donnelly sales team to like change, it's like, you have to have a rep sitting next to you. And that was number one. And then number two, this was a, they had become a big company and what came with big company, the bureaucracy and the negotiation on the product and the direction and stuff like that. And everything just, you know, when you left before I left, and I probably should have left when you left. Cause just watching, watching this, the dilution of a company was, was really, really sad because, everything was this bureaucracy and negotiation. And uh, Jamie, I don't think the answer was for them to double down on yellow pages. The, du- the answer was to pivot to online advertising and use the strengths that they had, but they couldn't get out of their way because of that it arrogance of that you way. talked about. Yeah. yeah Cause of that arrogance that you talked about, Jamie, I
3: think, I think for, I think for anybody who's a, a rep out there starting out, I, f- I almost feel like this and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong. But when the company starts saying that their competitive advantage is you, the sales rep, it, to me, I love the sales reps. I always want to, you know, but at the end of the day, the sales reps are going to go where the product is the competitive advantage because it makes their life easier. When you're the competitive advantage, go get your resume and go get a new job because there's someone else out there that has a better product and you're you're selling, you're, you're, it's but making it harder for you to sell. If
1: you're selling a but, crappy repeat, product, you... you <laughs> Well, the crappier your product is, the more you get paid, right? Because you're a differentiator, but that's not scalable, right? What about scalable. quarterly reports? You think that comes into play? Managing an investors' expectations every 90 days and then you throw out the long term growth?
3: 90 days, Pete. You've been out of the forest. It's every 30 days. Well,
1: I'm just back then.
3: You mean public market reports or just in general? Yeah, yeah,
1: in general. You know, I, look, I,
0: I'm not a big company person and I have you know, I won't even say I've ever like, I've never been on those, those earnings calls, but I, if I had to step back and say managing the short-term expectations would probably go a lot better in, in balancing that versus long-term expectations, if they were able to say definitively, and I'm going to plug my, my, my latest book here, Things like, I know who my customer is. I understand my business model. I know how we're prioritizing things for the short and long term. Here's how we're measuring it, right? And here's what we're going to do. And here are the things we don't know. They would probably be able to better say, we're not going to hit these numbers because we're going to hit these numbers down the future. And here's why we know. And here's the, why you should have confidence in us. But I don't think a lot of that happens. I think to your point, you know, it's, it's the fear that my stock price might go down.
1: You guys remember DoubleClick? Who the hell bought them? I don't even remember. Google. Oh, shoot. You would outsource to them. You would be the uh, site expert and you would have to go out and you would have to get Mindshare uh, to get the sales force, pitch your product and get, and that's sort of what the newspaper was like when we, because Builder had, uh, what was it? Three, four own- owners, Jamie? And you had to go out there and you had, back in the day, it was a four-legged sales call. You had the classified uh, person and then you had the online person. It became a fist fight on who was going to get what. And, you know, the online guy was winning. I, just because it was cheaper, you get more out of it. Uh, I, I just can't believe we, we couldn't take better advantage of it.
3: We couldn't take more advantage of it because the, the owners wanted to inflate their price. So no matter what we did, they were trying to protect, we, we, unfortunately at Kerbalder were owned by three sinking ships and those sinking ships wanted to protect their financials because they were public and we were not. So therefore they would, uh, protect their environment as much as possible. And that's why it was like that. But one company didn't own us. Three of them did. And all three of them sucked. And all three of them would just take as much money out of our bank account as possible because they were bleeding across the board. I think that's a very unique situation with what we were dealing with compared to a lot of other companies. Because usually sinking ships don't buy the the anchor that's sinking them.
1: Well, again, we got Amos here and he's – I'm with Amos, man. Smaller companies are a lot more fun – Oh, yeah. uh, having patience to work at a large company it's like politics man it, it mm-hmm. just doesn't just doesn't work you know mm-hmm. I, I just want to get the job done i don't care about your feelings uh boy that sounds like a that really sounds political um,
2: <laughs> you've talked yeah, about I, why companies need a sales strategy it sounds so freaking obvious like of course you need a sales strategy but like you literally have gone off and like wrote about like why companies should have a sales strategy. It's obvious, but wh- wh- why do you find the need to actually have to say that and explain that?: So I, I,
0: I believe that companies need a sales strategy for a number of reasons. I think the, the primary ones that I see are, one, it's very hard to find repeatability in your sales process if you don't have a strategy because you won't understand it. And if you don't have repeatability, it's quite literally impossible to scale effectively and be able to stay sustainable. The other reason to have a strategy and, and they, they tie together is because it gives people a common language around and, and the ability to be aligned around the things that people are working on so that everyone can be rowing in the same direction, which leads to re- repeatability. And I think one of the challenges that, I, that I've that i actually come, I think there's a couple of things. One, I think one, sometimes people don't fully understand the difference between strategy and tactics. Two, and I think this is a bigger thing that I've come in contact with recently, which is you know, there's, there can be a couple of different kinds of strategies and you may have one nailed and not the other one. And th- the one that people seem to rely on is the execution strategy. So, okay, we're gonna regionalize our reps. They're gonna, they're gonna sell into a region, that's our strategy. Or they're gonna sell them to an industry, that's our strategy. That's not a strategy. That's the execution of a broader strategy, which is understanding your W3, who, what, and why deeply so that then you can organize your teams in a way that aligns everybody to that strategy. And then everyone knows their marching orders. Everyone's rowing in the same direction. Everyone's talking about the same things. You're measuring your success on the same barometer um, and it gets everyone going in the same direction. I talk about all of this in Sell More Faster, Uh, And in levers.
2: What do you see when, uh, I mean, this is fascinating because I I love working with founders as well. And one of the cool things is that like you and I can meet these founders and the things that we talk about, it's like, oh my God, I hadn't thought about that. You know, Uh, it's like, we get to repeat this, you know, playbook because we've learned the hard way. And so time and time again, They they actually just don't figure out how to level up in that in that strategy. And why do you think that is? Like, why do you think that they you know? And a lot of these teams are product led founders. You know, they're product led. That's a huge you know uh, category these you know these days. Product led growth. So they have a product strategy. Why don't they think about a sales strategy? Why don't why don't they do that?
0: Yeah. Well. Well, I would argue this is separate from answering your question, but I would argue that those that have a product led strategy. The majority of them don't really understand what that means. And they probably don't have a customer facing strategy, which is okay. Awesome that they know what they want to build and why they want to build it. But what's the proof that the thing that they're building is the right thing. So I think answering your question more specifically, I'm guessing at this, I, I would be willing to bet that the number one reason is a combination of imposter syndrome and ego. And those two things marrying together, which is fucking ask for help building a company. Sorry that I cursed. I'll say it again. Go but, ahead. and All right. I won't say it again. Fucking ask for help. <laughs> like, building a company is hard. It's really, really hard. There is nobody. There is not one single successful billionaire founder that has done it by themselves. They have figured out how to surround themselves with the people that are experts that are better than them at the things that they do with mentorship, which is what Techstars is really good at, with advisors, with team members, with executive team members that are able to do the things that they can't do or don't know how to do and rely on them, right? Build a team and ask for help. So I think that's the biggest thing, right? It's like, oh, as the leader, I'm supposed to know how to do this. And so I'm scared for people to find out that I have no idea what I'm doing. Or being so bold to think that because I believe something is true, it is true, right? Like if you believe it, great, go prove it. Jake was awesome at this, right? Not at, 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 at being bad at this, at being really good at this. Jake said, would always say things like, great, I hear you. Your intuition might be right. Why do you believe it to be true? And one of the biggest things that, so Jake Weinbaum was the CEO of business.com. One of the biggest things that I learned from him, and I admire the shit out of this guy, was that he would ask the question why over and over and over again to get to dip deeper and deeper levels and would and force us to really question and prove why we our intuition was what it was. And sometimes our intuition was right and a lot of times it wasn't, but we would always get to a great and a better answer. But I think the biggest reason is people are afraid to be found out that they don't know.
1: It's the biggest obstacle of getting outside help and if, if you're the smartest guy in the room, get the fuck out of the room. Right?
0: <laughs> yeah. Totally. I never want to be that guy. I've never, am
2: that guy. Oh, that's hilarious.
1: If you can't figure who, who the player is, you're the one that's getting played.
2: (laughs) We, Amos, we talked about that, that last week on our podcast, this, you know, the CEO job, the founder job is one of the loneliest jobs out there because they feel like, gosh, I'm, I'm leading the the ship here. I should have all the answers and they, they don't. And so they get they get stuck in that. And that's where VCs these days need to provide additional value to help founders you know, through that. And obviously Techstars has a, an amazing yeah. acceleration program to, you know, to do that kind of stuff. So yeah, yeah no, you know, no doubt.
0: Well, I have a really close friend who's also uh, an executive coach. Um, he's not my executive coach, but he's a great executive coach named David Mendel, and, and he talks about the, the job of a CEO. And he said the, the CEO has only three jobs. Everything else is somebody else's. Job number one, set the vision of the company. Where are we going? Job number two, create a culture, whatever that is, create a culture, right? It is inherently the CEO's job to do that. And job number three, keep the company capitalized. Hmm. Everything else is somebody else's job. Now in day number one, when you're a solo founder, you are everybody else, but over time your job is to fill in the gaps with people that do that all better than you. Your job, your expertise should be those three things. I agree with that.
1: Oh, that's huge. Of, of those three, Amos, what, what, when does the founder need to be replaced? Which one of those three are they not doing well?
0: It's usually all three. I, I don't know. that. <laughs> it's, a great, it's a great question. And I don't know that I've seen one, but I, I, what I usually see is they sort of, that house of cards crumbles together, right? They can't set the vision, So they have trouble raising money and the culture is going to shit. Or, you know, it's, it's some combination of the three. And I also believe in trying to keep the CEO or the founder intact as a CEO for as long as possible, not always possible, but I do, I am a believer in trying to keep that, keep coaching that person to get there over
2: time.
1: Now, I don't know, but the capitalized part, cause they got to, you know, talk to the board and whatnot to keep the, the, the people putting the money in, keeping them happy or giving them data back. I would think that would be a huge, once you get to a small company, to a big company, if you can't objectively give the data that shows why you're doing what you're doing, you know, founder, because I I know it's going to fucking work. That's why we're going to do it. All right, uh, search firm time.
0: Yeah, not exactly. Not good enough, right? And in the early
1: days, by the way, keep the
0: company capitalized might be go out and sell. (laughs) Don't depend on somebody else, right? Like figure out, what are the initial metrics? And I talk about that in Sell More Faster, which is if the, if the founding team and not just the CEO, but certainly the CEO is not the first salesperson, you're probably fucking up. Because if you can't do it, you can't expect anyone else to do it. Sorry.
2: No, amen. You know, it's, it's funny you talked about that. That's set the vision of the company, create culture, keep company capitalized. And, but yet you're also saying, you also better be the first salesperson.
1: Well, and it's the same thing.
0: You're keeping the company capitalized through sales.
2: That's right. That's right. Uh, what, what I have found, and we talked about this on previous episodes as well, there's a difference between delegating and abdicating. Um, Simon Severino, that's, that was our guest, and we talked about that. And he goes, yeah, you, you, can't, you can't just go, I don't know sales, so I'm going to then hire a head of sales to then lead sales for me, because then you're going to get duped. You're, 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 cause you're not delegating that sale and sale pro sales process to then have an expert um, specialize in it. You're basically saying, I don't understand it. I don't know it. And you're closing your eyes and you're going to, I've seen founders get screwed by that because they just go, well, I don't understand it. So somebody else is going to figure it out for me and you're going to get lied to. It's just the God's honest truth, right?
0: There is a very small, small group of people who I think are capable of being a first salesperson in a company if they're not the founder. Um, Kevin, I think you're in that group of people. I like to think that I could be in that group of people back when I was an operator, but there are, it is a very, it's, and not special, like, you know, there's something special about us, but it takes a combination of being more like a, a product marketer versus a salesperson and being able to identify um, why things are connecting in a certain way. And for emotionally, the, your motivation to not be about the, the the cash register. I mean, of course, that's important. I'm a capitalist. I want to make money, but the primary prim, you know the primary motivation being the the solving of that puzzle. Amen.
1: Uh, what what can we plug for you, Amos? Let's let's make you some money out there because yeah, you got at least seven uh, or eight listeners that could go your way.
0: Awesome. So so. <laughs> Uh, recently, in April, we I, I wrote a, I co-authored a book called Levers: The, the Framework for um, Building Repeatability into Your Business. Two of my co-authors, Cody Sims and Trevor Bame, um, they have a they have created a side business using this framework. I'm an investor in that company, of course, um, where they teach this to companies. There's no equity exchange. It's it's a it's a one month long hands-on class that they teach. Uh, They work uh, with founders in small, small groups to teach them how to build repeatability into their business. Um, Would love to be able to share that. Uh, It works for startups. They typically their W3 is they target founding teams that have at least nine months of cash in the bank and a revenue, not a revenue stream because that would mean they already have repeatability, but they have revenue. So they have some semblance of who their customer is and there needs to be at least two executives, not a sole, sole founder.
1: Amos, what is W3?
0: W3 is the, the framework that we use to come up with stra- the sales strategy, which is who am I selling to? Who do you believe your customer is? What are they buying from me? Not what are, am I selling to them? And why are they buying my product?
1: Amos, thanks for coming on the show today. What's the best way for our listeners to learn more about you or connect with you?
0: The best way to reach out to me is over LinkedIn. I do my very best to respond to everybody. I'm just Amos Schwartzfarb at LinkedIn. I'm not super fast all the time, but I will always respond as long as you send me a message and don't just connect with me.
1: What about the people that just want to connect with you and just sell you right away? How do you feel about that?
0: Uh, if you if you are good at describing what you what you what I am buying from me and not what you are selling to me, I will likely engage with you.
1: Duly noted. Thanks for listening to the Sassols on behalf of Jamie KG and myself, Pete. We thank you for listening and ask for, for you to give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter in the podcast notes below and you can always buy us a beer on Patreon. We thank you for listening. Cue the music what's up guys what up
3: hey hello
1: jamie
3: last week i know i'm sorry whatever he he knows i was in there and i had i'm like i'll I out of know. amos sorry we're rehashing some old what's up you
0: fucking sassholes
3: Oh yes,
1: yes, that will be used. That will be used. Oh, you hear that, you TikTok fuckers? Ah, yeah. Amos, you put the ass in the sass. Nice.
0: Fuck yeah!
1: I don't know if that's a good compliment. Oh! Nice I'll take it. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! I was not expecting that. You're
3: coming in strong. Coming in strong.
1: Hot. So, came in hot. So,
2: Anus, Am- you know that uh, uh, Pete is a uh, is a musician.
1: I didn't. Oh, look didn't at know. that! Oh. I, need a I was going to ask man. you.
0: I I usually do hide this background, and I can. It's up to you guys. Or is this? No.
1: Are you fucking kidding good. me? Leave it, Sweet. dude. You actually play the drums? Where are you I located? Do. Well, f- I'm
0: in I'm in Austin. I do. I'm a better guitar player, and I'm not very good at that either. But I but I do play everything <laughs> there.
1: That means you're gonna. That means you play bass really well.
0: Oh, I suck. I'm fucking awful at bass. My fingers don't go <laughs> fast enough. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Fireworks! Absolute is that so fire. hard?
2: Why is it so hard for the other guests, Pete? Like why? because uh-huh. they, uh,
1: cause the they don't read the notes. Exactly! For God's sakes, I, I can tell that uh, Am is Amos Amos.
0: I say Amo, Amos mo- Amos. Yeah,
1: Amos. All right. A-I-M. That's the only way I'm going to remember it. I'm um, score- struggling
3: how to say your last name and you just said it. <laughs> it's, it's easier than it looks. It's just Schwartzfarb. Schwartzfarb?
1: Yeah. yeah. All right. Let's get this thing going here. Today, our guest is Amos... Shit. Amos Schwartzfarb. Demanded... Um... Oh, fuck. I should have read this beforehand. And that's a wrap. Cool. Woohoo, Amos! Thank you. You're a cool, dude, man. Thanks, man. I was. This was fucking super fun. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll see what the editing's like. But no, it's uh, we gotta help some of these poor kids out there.
0: So you're gonna edit. It's gonna be like fuck startups.
1: <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. Oh, yeah. Shit. Cool. All right. Smell you, yeah, you Anytime. Take care, guys.